The views expressed on Geeks and Beats are those of the participants alone and do not necessarily reflect the views of their employers. All is well? It's fine. Uh, I'm just cold, miserable. Uh, it's January. You know, what are you going to do? That's uh, that old uh, George Carlin routine about fine. Sometimes I'm fine. Not dandy. <laughs> it's uh, that time of year when the dogs stick their nose out the back door and decide that, no, I can hold it for a little longer. Yeah, I, I think we've all sort of figured that with the cold and the weather the way it is that the novelty has kind of worn off now and we're approaching the dog days of winter wasn't last monday the saddest day of the year something like that yeah because it's it's you're long enough after the holiday so that the glow has disappeared the bills have started to come in yes and the idea that you still have x number of weeks to go before you see any uh, appreciable warmth that was this formula that some professor created that made the third monday in january the worst day of the year january 22nd apparently is the best day of the year to buy a house did you know that why because among other reasons chances are the house that you're looking at that's on the market in January has been on the market for several months and you'll save up to $16,000 compared to if you had bought it in the spring when everyone else is buying a house. Oh, okay. So so it's a stale listing and people just have to have to move it because they want to buy up and go to their next house. There was a guy at the end of my block, actually, that had a house on, on, on the market for quite some time and nothing was happening until they changed the price to include a bunch of eights in it and then it was snapped up by an Asian buyer. Oh, because eight is a lucky number. That's right. Four apparently is the exact opposite. It's death. If you go into a um, high rise in, uh, in in the Far East, uh, there's almost never a fourth floor. Oh, so it's like a Western version of 13. Yeah. Well, it's a good thing this is not the 13th episode. Mm, 91, right? 91. Wow. From the headquarters of Geeks and Beats magazine, now available in your grocer's dairy case. Ask for yours today. This is the world's most popular podcast with Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth, featuring musical guest Sting. How to talk like a hepster. And yes, I did say hepster. We'll educate you on the hep lingo of the cats in the 1930s, daddy-o. The Apple Watch you're coveting? Get ready to charge it regularly or use it infrequently. The password is password. We'll run down the worst passwords of 2015 and Michael reveals his. Plus, why one auto industry analyst is comparing the latest vehicles on the showroom floor to a woman with breast implants. Uh, Yes, that's true. And now, Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth. I love this. You know, this is why the internet is so wonderful, because we have things that, that we resurrect things like this. Now, back in the pre-war years, jazz, big band, that was all very, very big. And Cab Calloway, who will be known as a uh, a big band singer to a lot of people who will be known as the Heidi Heidi Ho guy from the Blues Brothers movie. Um, he put out, I guess this would be best described as a glossary 
uh, of hipster words that were used by the jazz cats back then. Back in 1939. Yeah, it wasn't hipster. It was hepster. H-E-P-S-T-E-R. But we know that's basically the same thing. Same thing. Same thing. We just changed a little bit over the years. And uh, it's, it's, it's kind of cool. Did you know that a barbecue is a beautiful girlfriend? A hummer is something that is exceptionally good. Very different definition today. Uh, to cap a guy or to cap something is to be outdone or surpassed. Yeah. And then you've got uh, such things as break it up to win applause, uh, blow the top to become overcome with emotion, as in you'll blow your top when you hear this one. Some of these are have, the etymology of a lot of what we talk about today has its roots in this late 30s hepster vibe. Yeah, I'm, I'm fascinated by this, by, by musical etymology, because it tells you a lot of things about where things came from and all the various incarnation something had to go through until we get what we have today all right now we've got this massive list here on geeksandbeats.com of cab calloway's hepster lingo so let's see if we can put this together in a sentence i'll do one you do one you ready uh, are we just gonna go back and forth sure why not uh, okay go man that band is a hummer but i ain't coming on that tab if you want to alligator in the apple with that barbecue of yours she's a barrel house and that's the bible yeah i'm not even gonna try to do that uh, you win <laughs> That's really good. <laughs> Listen, if you don't bust your conk over that, you'll never be a cat, Daddy-o. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it sounds so incredibly rude to a 21st century ear. It does. It does. <laughs> it was so innocent back then. I know. I'm a gut bucket. I'm just looking at some of these other words. Ig, to ignore someone. Uh, oh, here. Hype. Build up for a loan. Wooing a girl. Persuasive talk. Interesting. I love Cab Calloway, and, and the only reason why I know Cab Calloway is I worked at what is now known as News Talk 1010 in Toronto when it was CFRB 1010, and they still played Cab Calloway. Oh, sure, when they had the uh, the Old People's Music Show. Well, that's the funny thing, is, is you call it the Old People's Music Show, but I, I believe at the time it was more referred to as beautiful music. Yes, yes. Uh, Cab Calloway, Peter Appleyard, people like that. Andre Costellanitz? Yeah, Cab Calloway was born on Christmas Day in 1907 in, uh, in Rochester, New York, if I recall, and actually his family relocated uh, shortly after the, sec uh, the First World War. And he spent his years growing up in West Baltimore, Sugar Hill, uh, which is is uh, a, a melting pot of music and culture for the black community. Interesting. I Again, uh, a lot of people will have come across Cab Calloway as the, the guy that was singing in the big finale in uh, the Blues Brothers movie. Heidi, Heidi, ho. If you know the Cotton Club you know Cab Calloway because he, yes, you do. he's one of those guys who made that club the, the famous club that it is or was. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There you go. So a little bit of big band lore for you. I love it. And, it, and it's funny, too, because a guy of my generation, uh, knowing the background and the history, a lot of, of that swing and, and big band type stuff is really quite unusual. You, so it, you turn a lot of heads when you're 17, 18 years old, as I was at the time when I worked at RB, uh, and um, actually being able to carry on a conversation with people in their 60s about the bands that they grew up with. It was that era's rock and roll, because when you 
jazz really starts to come around in the middle of World War One, and then it spreads because of radio beginning at about 1922, 1923. And then by the time we get to the uh, the 30s is when we have the, the glorious era of the big band of the big bands, you know, we had Glenn Miller and Tommy Dorsey and Duke Ellington and all those guys. Yeah. And then what happened was that after World War II, uh, it became too expensive to maintain these giant bands, which would have 12, 18, 20 members. So everything began to shrink down a little bit more manageable, a little bit more affordable. And we ended up with these five and six piece combos. And instead of having multiple instruments dealing with um, all kinds of uh, you know different arrangements, you know, you, you focused on the saxophone, you focused on the upright bass, you focused on a drummer with a big backbeat. And that more or less became the foundations of rock and roll. But the 21st century. Century equivalents. We're seeing uh, it through your uh, report here on geeksandbeats.com that there's more evidence that Skynet is rising. We've actually got robots now that can improvise jazz. Yeah, I was I was wondering what Cab Calloway would think about these guys. There's a, it's out of Japan, and uh, there's this this great video, and I'll post it in the show notes, that you can watch these robots, there's one, two, three of them, that actually kind of get into the, they, they're improvising jazz, there's no other way to, to, to put it. It's actually not based out of Japan, although I can see how you might think that, considering the look of these robots, it looks like they've got two eyeballs on the sides of their little bulbous head, and they have these little feet that actually tap out along to the beat. Uh, but there's actually a fourth one as well that plays the xylophone, and this is all designed by a, a doctoral candidate at Georgia Tech Center for Music Technology, Mason Bertan. And he's come up with these robots he calls Shimi and Shimon, which uh, basically listen to what he's playing as a real human being, figure out the baseline associated with it, the tempo associated with it, and then start to basically ad-lib around whatever it is he's playing. Yeah, riff on it. Yeah, which is exactly what improvisation is. You, you Here's the key, here's the tempo, here's the groove. Go. He's uh, figuring that this is evidence that you can actually teach a robot to ad-lib its way around anything. And uh, it, it really gets cooking here when, once you get the, the marimba involved as well. And what's fascinating to me is that he's using artificial intelligence to come up with all of this. It's not a function of, well, if I hear this beat, then I'm going to play this particular series of notes. It's purely based upon whatever it is you want to play. Now, in all honesty, there's not a lot of soul here. I mean, it's pretty accurate. So sometimes when it comes to music, you need those imperfections, those, um, those human foibles to actually make something sound more beautiful. But still, it's, it's a cool bit of Skynet technology. Mason Bertan got his start doing this um, first by developing a robotic drumming prosthesis for an amputee drummer. We talked about this uh, about a year ago or so. The device has two sticks, one controlled by the user through muscle signals and the other completely autonomous that responds to the user's movements as well as the music. And that was the basis for what we're listening to now. Mm -hmm. Very cool. But again, a bit creepy. A bit creepy. 
and certainly not going to replace a musician at any point, but I could imagine, wouldn't it be neat? And you'll notice that these robots have what looks like iPhones attached to them uh, to uh, get the input-output. It wouldn't be a, a bad idea that if, you know, one of your band members uh, skips out on you, you just fire up your iPhone and plug that into the amplifier. As a, as a drummer, I, I know how that person would feel because of, of the whole drum machine thing. Ah, uh, yes. I guess the drummers have already had to deal with something like this. Uh, yes, we have. And bass players to a certain extent, too. We're going to take a quick break. We're going to talk about you during the commercial break. If you're listening on Terrestrial Radio, if you're listening on iTunes, Stitcher, uh, we will uh, continue. And we're going to talk about the shocking fact about Super Mario Brothers that will make you furious. It's me, Mario. Did you ever play Super Mario Brothers? You know, I didn't. That was one of the games that I, I skipped out. I was more into uh, Berserk and Pac-Man and... Uh, ah, so you were arcade-based. You weren't home console-based. No, no. I, I, you know what? I've never owned a console. Never. Not once. If you've ever played Super Mario Brothers, you know the pain and horror of that third death of your third man and having to go back to the beginning. Posted to Reddit the other day was a code that surprised pretty much any major fan of the original Nintendo Entertainment System. There is an easy way to pick up where you left off after you died, and nobody knew about it until now. So this was a, a hidden cheat code? On the original Super Mario Brothers for the NES, you can start wherever you died by hitting the A button and the Start button at the same time. Oh, come on. Somebody must have discovered that a long time ago. Really? According to the Inertron, this is new news. And it was, it was a two-button move. And Okay, fine, whatever. Most of those codes were, you know, you up, up, down, down, left, left, right, right, A, A, B, B, go. Mm -hmm. And that would do that sort of thing. So it wouldn't surprise me if everybody assumed that holding down the A and the start button wasn't going to be enough. But that, that's... That seems to be something that you could do by mistake. This belies your lack of experience with the Nintendo Entertainment System joystick. Not even a joystick, a gamepad. Is the A and the start buttons weren't close enough that you would accidentally oh. hit them both at the same time. Okay. All right. Well, that's very cool. I've never tried it. I don't have an NES anymore. If you've got an NES at home, boot the thing up and see if that in fact works. Because, you know, if you read it on the internet, surprisingly, it's not always true. Amazingly. Okay. So, and the code is one more time? A and the start button. Apparently, you have to do that at the beginning of the game. You can't be, you know, 12 levels in and then hit A and start. You have to do A and start at the beginning. And maybe that's why it didn't occur to anybody over the past 20 years to try it, because why would you bother on, you know, number one? Right. Okay. Good tip. You're listening to Geeks and Beats on iTunes, Stitcher, and the Bell Media Radio Network. So are you getting all itchy for the new Apple iWatch that isn't called iWatch? I'm hot and cold about it. I'll probably buy one simply because, well, I'll do it for the show. I have to see oh, what yes. these things do. And then you're going to write it all off. Well, I'll write, absolutely. It's what I do for a living. 
But I'm, I'm, I'm curious about it. But like I said way back when, when we first started talking about wearables and watches with interfaces with your smartphone and all the rest of it, I don't like the idea of having to charge something every single day. I mean, I have a, a couple of automatic movement watches, which are fully mechanical, and you have to keep moving or you have to keep them, the watch moving, in order so the uh, device continually self-wind. What do they call it? Kinetic energy or something like that? Yeah, there's there's a there's sort of like a, a pendulum thing that goes around and around and around inside the uh, uh, the watch case and that pendulum, the movement of that pendulum uh, winds the watch and you, as, long, as long as you um, as you keep moving, that thing keeps moving and the watch keeps keeps going. But if I leave this one particular watch, it's a bomb and mercy. If I leave it on the, the counter in the kitchen for two days, it's done. And that really annoys me. Now, the, the, to have a, a, a an iWatch, or sorry, an Apple Watch <laughs> that I know is going to die after every two days. Again, it's something else I have to plug in. I mean, I'm, whoa, I'm whoa, out of backup. Not every two days. Did you see this on 9to5Mac.com? If you are an active user of the Apple Watch, they have concluded that the watch will provide no more than four hours of use. What? Four hours? Two and a half to four hours of active application use, 19 hours of combined active and passive use, three days if you didn't look at it once, or four days if you put it in sleep mode. Okay, well, right there, that's a problem. Four... No, I'm not going to... No. I mean, I, I, I freak four, out when uh, I... Before I get you all hot and bothered about this, though, four hours of active application use is ridiculous on a device like this. You're not... You don't buy an Apple Watch so that you can be constantly staring at the face of it. That's what your iPhone is for. This is supposed to be just for occasional and passive use updates, looking at your watch when you need to know if you got to turn left at the next light or if you want to check your, your Twitter update. This isn't the kind of thing that you would would use the same way you'd use a smartphone. Well, does that not make it a little a little better? A, a little bit, but I still see. I, uh, again, for me, a watch is a piece of jewelry. I, I'd like that aspect of it. I, I, I will buy one. I'll buy the, the the bottom of the line, the cheapest one. I really don't need anything that's that's really really fancy. I just want to see how it works and how what how my behavior would be influenced by it, and vice versa. Right, right. Well, because you, as we understand it, it's something like anywhere from $400 to $1,400, depending on the model you want to get, right? Yeah, but that's if you have white gold trim and the, and the, um, uh, and the and the strap and everything else that goes along with it. The problem with the battery life, if you use it on a significantly active basis, is the the brains behind it. It's got the Apple A5 processor inside it, which is the same as inside the current generation iPod Touch. In other words, you're looking at a processor that's capable of playing video games at 60 frames per second, powering something that has a one and a half inch diagonal screen. Yeah, but look how big the battery is. That's probably the other side of it. I'm surprised they didn't go kinetic with the Apple Watch like they do with all those high-end watches. But I suppose the the problem is is that no matter how much kinetic activity you gave it, it wouldn't be enough when you're dealing with something as powerful as an A5 chip and a screen like that. No, with with the kinetic watches, the uh, the automatic movements, what you're simply doing is winding a spring. Right. Here, you have to figure out how to charge a battery. And I'm sure Apple's looking at that. There's got to be a way to that movement can 
generate some kind of voltage that would that would char- recharge a battery, but they just haven't figured it out for version one. Apparently, the reason why we didn't get the Apple Watch in 2014 is, according to 9to5Mac sources, is that Apple was very concerned about the battery life itself, and that's why they pushed back the retail launch from 2014 to, quote, early 2015, which my sources tell me now is most likely going to be April 1st. Which, you know, you can make your own jokes there. Yeah. No, I heard March, late March, early April. We'll see. We'll see. Apparently 3,000 of them are already in the wild right now. Well, I, I would imagine they have to be out there as people are, are, are you know, what is it, beta gamma testing them? <laughs> beta gamma testing them. Uh, as well, apparently they've been trying to figure out how to make the MagSafe inductive charging mechanism better than what it currently is. What kind of connecting mechanism does it have? That's the thing, is it's very much like the, the kind of charging system that your cordless toothbrush has. It's, you just sit it down on a, on a pad and it, it'll charge. See, I'm out, of, um, I'm out of USB ports. You plug it directly into the wall. You won't need a USB port. And besides, you can just get a hub. Well, it's got to be a powered hub. Have you seen my office? <laughs> yes, yes, I have seen your office. <laughs> have you seen all the cords that I've got running to yes. all the power bars? You, 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 are, you are deep into the world of godless Darwinism and communism. Oh, I love this. This comes from The Register, which is a, a great site to go to if you want any kind of um, gossip in the, in the tech industry. Yeah, they call it biting the hand that feeds IT. Yeah, I love this. And it's been around for, for oh, 20 plus years. So there's this guy, Dr. Richard Paley. He's a teacher of divinity at something called uh, the Fellowship University. I have no idea where that is. And he's he's all over Apple for being um, so terribly, awfully godless because he insists that Apple is promoting Darwinism and communism. Let me just read this. The real operating system hiding under the newest version of the Macintosh operating system, Mac OS X, is called Darwin. That's right. New Macs are based on Darwinism. While they currently don't advertise this fact to consumers, it is well known amongst the computer elite who are mostly atheists and pagans. Furthermore, the Darwin OS is released under an open source license, which is just another name for communism. They try to hide all of this under a f- the facade of shiny, lickable, but lickable? Buttons. Lickable? Yeah. But the truth has finally come out. Apple computers promote godless Darwinism and communism. I had no idea. Darwin himself was not an atheist. Darwin himself never said his theory of evolution proved God did not exist. And frankly, if this guy thinks that Apple is promoting communism, have you seen how much Apple products cost? (laughs) I know. Hypnotically encased iMacs trick unsuspecting computer users into accepting Darwinism. Apple was founded by long-haired hippies and has consistently supported 60s counterculture values, in quotes. Lovely. First came the iPod. Then a slightly thinner iPod. Then a tinier iPod. Then a taller, thinner iPod. Then a taller, thinner iPod that shuffles your songs. Then a pink one, a blue one, a green one. Then an even smaller iPod. Then a wider iPod. Then an iPod you can touch. Then an iPod you can talk on. Then an iPod you can talk on with a G on it. Then a shorter, fatter iPod. Then a shorter, fatter iPod that shuffles. Then a thinner iPod you can talk on with a 4 on it. Then a gigantic iPod you cannot talk on. Then a gigantic iPod you cannot talk on that's a little faster. Then a white one. Oh my god, oh my god, oh my god. White. Then a thinner, taller iPod you can talk on. And now a bigger but not gigantic iPod you cannot talk on. We're Apple and you're suckers. 
Think the internet is cool? Geeksandbeats.com is now available on computers. Read the stories the boys are talking about, stream the latest episode, and get caught up on back issues of the world's most popular podcast, Geeksandbeats.com. Also available on CD-ROM. Time now for a Geeks and Beats update. London, Bangkok, New York, Cincinnati. From the worldwide headquarters of Geeks and Beats magazine, this is a GNB News Update. We finally have enough interns paying us as part of the world's worst intern program for you and me to go out to Starbucks once a week after the show to get a cup of Joe. Well, you could... Yeah, we each get a, a cup of tall blonde, and that's it. Exactly. Uh, you uh, pledge $1 per episode to help make the show possible, and we sign you up for the intern program. Uh, Paul is the latest uh, patron. Uh, Kevin Priestley, Steve Robinson, Robin Calda, Corey Mosher, uh, Bevan Lance, Mike Wise, John Buffoni, The Straw Hat No, Joe G, and our first GNB intern under the Patreon system, Gary Stuthers, have all opened their wallets to uh, support the show by uh, giving a dollar per episode now we are not going to blow this money on coffee we promise however we uh it'll go into the kitty it'll go into general revenues and will help us make this program bigger and stronger the way it works is we ding you for a buck after you sign up for this but the neat thing is is that you can set a dollar limit so that once you hit x number of episodes or x number of contributions to help keep the show on the air we um don't ding you after that no. so if you, you don't have to worry about us ringing up your visa bill or anything like that uh, and the neat thing too is that if a dollar is uh, simply not enough for you to contribute if you pledge 25 bucks you become a co-producer of the world's most popular podcast not only do we talk about you we send you the album art for each episode to thank you for your support vouch for you on your resume or linkedin profile uh, and uh, regardless as to how much you prom- you spend uh, promote helping us with the show uh, we um, we'll get you the episode earlier than those punks listening on the radio or anybody who's uh, catching us on iTunes who didn't uh, pledge any amount of money. One of the things we're also doing is we're using the power of the Geeks and Beats radio network to uh, try and sell some ad time for this radio show. Are we really, though? I don't want to put any money or effort into trying to figure that out. Money or effort. It's not going to cost us any money. It, it <laughs> maybe a little bit of effort on somebody's part, maybe mine, but we'll, we'll figure it out. I would like to see a little bit of, of profit come this way. Oh, okay. All right. Thing is, is that if you're willing to pledge 500 bucks per episode, you actually become a promoter and we will uh, kiss your ass on the big show with an advertisement written by you, but largely ad-libbed by us. And that does air on the Bell Media Radio Network in Toronto, Ottawa, London, uh, and uh, Montreal as well. And you're talking more listeners than you could shake a stick at. Well, yeah. And that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to plumb the ratings, find out exactly how big our audience is, and then and ding people accordingly. Have you seen the latest uh, Geeks and Beats uh, Mug Tour 2015 uh, on Twitter? Yeah, this was today, wasn't it? Punch in the hashtag GN, as in Norman, B, Mug Tour 2015, as it was uh, first uh, brought to us by uh, GNB listener uh, Victor Biggio. Anyone who goes to our website and buys one of our miracle travel mugs of traveling needs to post a photo of wherever they are with it. And that hashtag shows a whole bunch of people, including the latest, a beach in South Korea. Oh, I missed that one. Hang on. Did you even know South Korea has beautiful beaches? Yeah, I was in I was in Korea a couple of years ago. Really? But uh, yeah, it's, they're all in the south around Busan and everything. Yeah, I've been there. 
Well, no, I haven't been to Busan, but I've been to South Korea. Oh, we've got uh, Victor himself um, starting his uh, GNB Mug Tour 2015 with a trip to Blue Mountain on a beautiful minus 15 day. Mm-hmm. Uh, Garage Rock uh, did his in uh, Follivet, Ontario, I think it is. And Andrew Stokely uh, writes, good morning from Disney. <laughs> That's a good one. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Proximo is beating the cold in Calgary uh, with his GNB mug uh, there, which uh, looks like on uh, one of the main streets there. In uh, well, the snow's not too bad right now. I'm going to uh, Ireland in a couple of weeks. I, I will take the mug to Ireland. See, every time you go away, you promise. I know, I know. And then you never deliver. What if I do this time? You need, uh, much like last week when we talked about you um, inappropriately wrapping your arms around Courtney Love, you need... These rock stars you interview every week uh, for uh, your, your radio show on CFNY to uh, hold up the mug, you know sort what? of a promotional thing. Could you imagine Billy Idol with a G&B mug? Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to buy a second mug, and I'm going to use that second mug as my traveling mug. It's a stunt mug. The stunt mug. Exactly. <laughs> uh, Geeks and Beats. Why do, I have right? to wait? Why do I have to buy one? Oh, that's right, because we don't have any money. No, yeah. none whatsoever. Okay. Well, we've got 10 bucks. Well, 11 bucks now, courtesy of our latest uh, intern. No, no, no. Let's put that away for a rainy day. You never know when it's going to happen. True. Geeks and Beats writer Matt Padani has gone through that list of uh, online passwords that have been hacked. Oh, this one, yeah. Every year we get this list of the top 25 passwords that have been hacked. And every year, number one on the list is 123456. Yeah. Who is still making 123456 their password? Well, your grandmother, that's who's making it their password. Yeah, probably. I mean, I can't see. I don't password protect a lot of my stuff um, here at home because nobody else uses it. But when I whenever I use something that I, you know, my laptop or my iPad or my phone or something like that, when I have to, t- you know, I, I, I actually try to encrypt it best I possibly can. But I had some guys come in and uh, install some uh, some new gear for me. And uh, I, I cracked it open and it's like, oh, enter your password. Like, what are you talking about? Why password? So I phone them up and said, what's, what's the password? And they go, password. The password is password. Yeah. That's number two on the list. Number two on the list. So I have a couple of pieces of uh, electronic gear in the, in, here in the house where the password is, in fact, password. At number 20 on the list, Michael. Really? Why Michael? I have, Well, Michael's a very popular name in all. I, I don't know what the top... Uh, let me punch this into the intro. Boys names for 2015 popular. Oh, it's Liam. Is it Liam that's number one? Yeah, Liam. No, there was something in the Golden Mail, or, or was it uh, the National Post recently? Yeah, the, the most popular name for kids these days is Liam, for boys. And for girls, by the way, in a couple of provinces, it's Olivia. My daughter's name, indeed. Yes. Uh, Liam, Jacob, Mason, William, Ethan, Michael is number five, Alexander, Jaden, and Daniel. But that's of 2015. So, you know, these are kids who aren't going to be creating their own passwords for another at least 10 to 15 years or so. So you're looking at a generation behind. So that's clearly something like that. I would never make my, you know what I, you know what my password is? Mm. 
I'll tell you what my password is. When I was driving um, to the cottage every year, uh, just as we came around the bend to our cottage, just before that, there was a uh, there was a gas station, and they listed three things that they sold um, at that gas station that were um, uh, fuel, fishing, and um, party related, mm-hmm. and. Just the structure of the three words on the sign made it look like they were selling one item. Okay. That was the most unusual. And of course, I'm not going to tell you what it actually is. No. But the gist of it is, is that the the lesson to be learned about making a good password is not to have a, a verb followed by a couple of digits because computers can easily figure that out. Three separate words that have absolutely nothing to do with each other is the most effective password system you've got Hmm. you don't even need extra numbers you don't need extra characters it's just three words that don't make any sense together because the algorithms that are typically used to crack passwords try to take words that are similar to each other and add numbers to them to crack them so while almost every single password on the planet is crackable the most difficult passwords are ones with multiple words that have nothing to do with each other and these three words on this sign had nothing to do with each other but they looked like the most horrific girly drink you could buy and so that's now my password Mm. the uh this reminds me of umberto echo's book um Foucault's Pendulum. And there's a part in the book where somebody tries to break into this dead guy's computer and a dialogue box comes up on the screen that reads, do you have the password? Do you know what the password is? Yes. No. The password was no. Yeah. Yes. I mean, what's the guy's name on first? You get what the... is on second? I'm not asking you who's on second. Who's on first? I don't know. Let me... <laughs> one of the craptastic mugs of the world's most popular podcast and support the show. You too can use the power of science to hold liquids, both hot or cold. Visit geeksandbeats.com today. You're listening to Geeks and Beats on iTunes, Stitcher, and the Bell Media Radio Network. If you had all the money in the world, what's the one record you would buy? Me, it's easy. I would buy Sex Pistols' God Save the Queen on a and God Here's the deal. 1978, the Sex Pistols were kicked off EMI. They were signed to, our, uh, to A&M for five days. Uh, during that time, they pressed up copies of God Save the Queen. But before that could be released, there was such a hue and cry by the members of the board at AM and some of the other artists on, on, on the label, such as the Carpenters, who were very upset that they would be on the same label as, uh, as uh, the Sex Pistols. So they were paid 75,000 pounds to go away. And all the records that they had pressed up over those five days were ordered destroyed. Now, uh, most of them were, however, a select number managed to escape the factory and are in circulation these days. Now, the number is a bit vague. It could be anywhere from a couple of dozen to 300, but these things sell for up to $25,000 each. So I would like, to, just because of you know what I do and where my musical allegiances lie, I would like a copy of God Save the Queen by the Sex Pistols on AM uh, on AM, uh, serial number AMS 7284. 
you point out on geeksandbeats.com uh, that, of course, there are two gold records that one would really love to have that no one could in a million years actually get. And that is uh, the two gold records that were sent out on the Voyager probes. I would, I would love to have a replica of that. Do they make replicas? You would think that there would be one, but I've never heard of one. I mean, they're, they're, they're old school phonograph records. I mean, they're, they're coated in gold to prevent them from degrading. Mm-hmm. But uh, you would think that there would be some available, but there's not. They went out on both Voyager spacecraft back in 1977. Sounds and images to portray the diversity of life and culture on Earth. What, what is actually on this album? Oh, greetings in a bunch of different languages, uh, sounds of various activities on Earth, and then there are samples of, uh, of music from all kinds of different cultures and countries. Carl Sagan was the one who uh, basically curated this, did he not? Yeah, he did. And I'll tell you right now that the only rock and roll song on there is Johnny B. Good by... Um, Chuck Berry. By Chuck Berry. And the musical selection also includes Bach, Mozart, Beethoven, Stravinsky, and uh, Blind Willie Johnson. Oh, very famous blues player from uh, the 1920s and 30s. Uh, gospel blues, according to the internet. His songs were usually religious. His music drew from both sacred and blues traditions and is distinguished by his slide guitar. Mm-hmm. That would be a fascinating album to have, let alone a fascinating album to actually have uh, picked up by some alien life form and then read. Well, that would make it, uh, you know, extraordinarily cool and rare. But I don't think that there's enough money on in, in this in, in this arm of the universe for anybody to go and fetch this thing. Yes. Because last time I checked, and there, if you go to NASA, and, well, if, if you just plug in, where is Voyager now into Google? Where is Voyager now? Okay. You'll get a site that will tell you in real time how far, far these probes are away from Earth. Yeah, from uh, NASA's website, Voyager 1 is now 19 billion kilometers away from the Earth, uh, 19 and a half billion, and a round-trip light time from the sun would take 36 hours, 16 minutes, and 20 seconds. Voyager 2 is only 16 billion kilometers away. Yeah, it took a different route, so it's a little, little behind uh, fast facts. Voyager 2 is in the heliosheath, which is the outermost layer of the heliosphere where the solar wind is slowed by the pressure of interstellar gas. Ah, much like your dog. Exactly. Doesn't that sound like a condom? The heliosphere? The heliosheath. <laughs> Doesn't it? How big is your ego? <laughs> I'm just saying. Yeah, just saying. Uh, as we talk about, if you had all the money in the world, which one record would you buy? Updating the all-time record sales numbers, it surprises me absolutely not that the Beatles has 178 million albums sold just in the United States. Yeah, the yeah, just in the U.S. So the Beatles are on top. And then it upsets me ever so much to hear that Garth Brooks is number two. You know, Garth Brooks has sold 135 million records. More, more than Elvis. Elvis was uh, just a, he's a, you know, okay, statistically, when we're in that, it's about the same, 134,000, 134,500,000, so. You could argue, though, that, you know, if you look at Garth Brooks' success versus Elvis Presley's success, that if everything was equal, Elvis would be far more than Garth Brooks. Oh, Elvis would probably be far more than the Beatles. Purely by the, the list of number of people who would be able to purchase an album at the time uh, versus the distribution and, and all that other stuff. Right. Because remember when Elvis came out it was in the middle 50s. And the Internet was brand new then. <clears throat> exactly. So there wouldn't. Yeah, right. No, no. The Internet existed. They had like eight nodes. 
1955. Yeah, ARPANET. No, that wasn't until the 60s. What? Really? Okay. Look it up. I'm going to look it up. But not until the 60s. So if he had, you know, and, and he, this was in the age of um, of singles. It was in the age of uh, before really people got into buying albums from rock and roll artists. So, you know, if we were to weight this in some way that would put Elvis on an equal technological and distribution level as the Beatles and Garth Brooks, he would probably have more. All right. It's kind of like when you say, hey, Gone with the Wind is the most successful film of all time, because if we prorate everything for inflation from 1939, this is what we get. Okay, you were right. 1968, ARPA was approved. Yeah, that's right. And uh, Elvis was well on his way to becoming chunky by that point. 1968, wasn't that the Hawaii show? I think it was. So, yeah, he was in his uh, third comeback at that point. Number four on the list of all-time album sales in the United States, Led Zeppelin at mm-hmm. uh, more than 111 million, and then the Eagles. Most of those Eagles records come with that Greatest Hits Volume 1, which is just a massive, massive seller, 30-odd million for that one Greatest Hits collection. And of course, if we got to talk about Canadian albums, uh, no surprise number one on the list is Celine Dion. Celine Dion has one of the highest selling albums in America in the SoundScan era, which began in 1991. So she's got about 50 million albums under her belt. Shania Twain, which is also a big SoundScan era seller in the U.S., 48 million. And then there's Rush, uh, way down at number 82. Uh, They say that they sold 25 million records in the U.S., which I find a little bit low. But uh, okay, that's fine. Uh, 25 million is still a pretty good number. And uh, that will probably go up a little bit more this year when Rush embarks on what's probably going to be their last ever major tour in North America. Before we go, we were looking at um, the future of the automobile. We've been talking a lot about the electric car and how because they're so silent, the auto industry has had to add audio that mimics the sound of a a standard um, engine, a combustion engine. But now we're learning from the Washington Post that even your Ford F-150 and that meaty, throaty rumble that the truck uh, will uh, give you when you hit the accelerator is actually faked. Yeah, it's pumped into the cockpit because the cockpit otherwise is too quiet for you to be able to hear the engine. So, no, 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 no. Funny that you should bring this up, because yesterday I, I have a car that has to go back on a lease in May. Yes. So I'm starting to shop for cars. And yesterday I went to a Lexus dealership because I wanted to try out the new uh, FC model. And, or is it RC? No, it's the RC 350F or whatever. Okay. And, and it's got a 460 horsepower V8 engine. Mm-hmm. And it has uh, a number of um, settings. There's cruise, there's sport, and there's sport plus. And when you set it to sport plus and you jam on the accelerator, you get this wonderful throaty uh, growl that just sounds awesome. But it kind of struck me as coming from a weird place because here in this cockpit, moving along the QEW outside uh, west of Toronto, all of a sudden it was this huge roar. And I'm thinking, this can't be right. 
So, and then I remembered how maybe Lexus might be one of the companies that's actually pumping in fake engine noises into the cockpit. The 2015 Mustang EcoBoosts, according to this article, Ford sound engineers and developers have this active noise control system that amplifies the engine's purr, and again, through the car speakers. So I suppose, fortunately, the public at large, as you're... Um, as a pedestrian or what have you, you don't have to deal with this. But if I was a motorist, I wouldn't want this pumped into my car. I want silence. I don't want to hear the car. Nah, see, but you, but you drive a Honda. <laughs> Thanks. One of the reasons I'm considering a Jaguar F-Type uh, is because of the the engine noise. The engine noise is just, oh, it's just orgasmic. It's awesome. But it's fake. No, 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 no not this one. Not this one. Oh. Um, but, uh, and, you know, there are some automobile manufacturers that do fake it. BMW is one. Uh, Lexus uh, is is another, like I said. Uh, they had something called the uh, LFA Supercar, which is a fantastic car, but it's like $620,000 and they're also allowed. Um, even that car, uh, they had some trickery that would focus engine noise into the driver's area. Carl Brower over at Kelly Blue Book is quoted in the article as implying that any automaker that pumps fake car noise into the cockpit of the vehicle, it's sort of the equivalent of a woman with a boob job. Yeah, I, I, yeah, okay. I, I'm, I'm with you on this. I love the sound of engines. I, you know, uh, cars go by my house. I can tell you what model of car just drove by based on the engine noise. And, you know, a Ferrari sounds like a Ferrari. A Porsche sounds like a Porsche. Um, a, a Lamborghini sounds like a Lamborghini. You can pick these things out. In other words, your car is basically a trophy wife. Absolutely nothing rational about what I'm talking about here. Like a trophy wife. <laughs> Catch all new episodes of Geeks and Beats Wednesdays on iTunes. And watch for Geeks and Beats magazine on a newsstand near you. To be part of next week's show, call area code 323-319-NERD. Follow the stories on Twitter or Facebook and get your dose of Geeks and Beats anytime at geeksandbeats.com. The Geeks and Beats podcast would like to thank the National Science Foundation.